Hello and welcome to the GLT podcast series with the Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends Book Club, where we talk all things teaching and learning with leading educationalists across the world. My name is Rhiannon Rainbow. And my name is Dave Tushingham. This is a place to enjoy listening to organic conversations between teachers and authors, a journey in bringing the latest evidence-based literature into the classroom. Good afternoon and welcome to our 69th Greenshaw Learning Trust and Friends GLT Book Club session. My name is Rhiannon Rainbow and my uh, the co-founder and I, so Dave Tushingham and I, are absolutely thrilled to be joined this afternoon by Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson. So it's the second time that Robin's joined us as a special guest and which after bits that you chose to come back. Thank you very much. Um, and it is just a huge honor to have these two exceptional special guests joining us this afternoon. Um, Carl Hendrick is an esteemed educational researcher, author, speaker, and his contributions have made a significant impact on teaching methodologies and we look forward to gaining um, more valuable insights from him today as 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 we we have these discussions and as i mentioned returning as our special guest is the brilliant robin mcpherson who's an experienced educator and instructional leader and his dedication to bridging the gap between research and practice has been instrumental in transforming um, educational environments so we're delighted to have him back as well to share his valuable perspectives with us but that's not all. We also have George Dwoblis joining us from our very own community today. Um, his presence and expertise will provide us with a valuable takeaway and a unique perspective on the content that we'll be exploring. And he's also our science lead across the Greenshaw Learning Trust, so he's brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us, George. And in the wings this afternoon, we have Karen Hancock, who is gonna be capturing the essence of our discussion through her live sketch notes providing an exciting visual representation of our insights. So thank you so much, everybody. Um, absolutely thrilled this afternoon. I think I'm going to use too many superlatives about that one. So before we dive into our conversation, I'm, I'm going to hand over to co-founder Dave Tushingham, who will shed a light on how what does this look like in the classroom fits into the broader theme of our sessions and why we specifically chose the extracts we'll be focusing on today it was pretty tricky just to choose a few because there's so much richness in this book. So without further ado, let's hear from Dave and embark on the discussions together. Over to you, Dave. Oh, thanks, Sue. And thanks, Carl and Robin, for joining us. Um, we are incredibly lucky just to be able to have your expertise as we think about uh, what it means for our classrooms. And, and that's what we do each um, session. We, we look at um, the uh, literature, we look at the books that have been written, and we think about what it looks like in our classrooms. So today we're going to look at what does it look like in the classroom? In the classroom, we're going to think about how we interpret what's been written here and, and you being here to support us is just going to, going to be such um, an important and valuable resource for us. So thank you so much for giving up your time. Uh, and, and the book, um, I mean, first of all, it's an obvious selection for, for our book club because it's doing exactly what we're trying to do um, just with that um, extra layer of expertise. It's got so much um, in that book um, for, um, for those sort of, staff room discussions I guess you could call them where um, you're you're thinking about your next lesson and you're like just don't know what to do about this have you ever thought about this um, group work um, I find that some dominate what would I do and then you've got in the book someone like bug them off saying well here's turning tool try using this um, and and there's there's certain parts of the book which will talk about um, the, the theory um, and the evidence behind um, where those decisions are made. You've got um, experts that are talking about, well, actually, um, when I look at, um, I'm thinking with Tom Bennett, for example, um, Smile Before Christmas, um, should, I, should I be really strict uh, with my students up until a certain point? Um, and Tom Bennett talking about, well, there's a grain of truth in that, but there is a lethal mutation that we have here. And those expert insights, as well as the theory to go behind it. And, uh, and there's one particular one here as, uh, as well, um, if I can find it quickly, um, where it, it talks about um, do students learn best in groups and what's the evidence? And, and the book talks about, well, there's some evidence that, that pe pupils learn best in groups, but there's evidence that they don't. And, and it goes into some detail about where that evidence lies. So you go in to the classroom and feeling really reassured, but also informed um, as to what um, you could be doing to support your students the best. Um, there's a real humility about the book as well, I think. Um, there is, um, in the conclusion, uh, where you talk about the evidence, um, how it 
points towards a series of best fits. Um, it isn't telling us that this is the way to do things, but it, it certainly gives us um, not only that starting point, but answers some of those questions. And it, and it acts a little, for me anyway, and like, correct me if that's not the intention, but, but it, like a surgery where I, I think I'm not sure what to do. I've just had this experience. It's not been the most positive. Let me reflect. This is what I think has gone wrong. What could I do instead? I go to the book, I have a look in that chapter and I've got Daisy Christodoulou or, or you know, Dylan William or, or some, some other expert that's talking to me about the assessment and why it didn't quite work and, and offering me those insights and their insights and, and some sort of you know, validation behind them. So I think the book is one of those which I'd recommend every teacher has in their back pocket ready to, to refer to if they get to that point where they're stuck. Like, like the students in the um, deliberate practice episode, you get stuck, go to that book. That's a really good resource for, for an expert teacher and a novice one too, um, who might be look, trying to find their way through. So thank you so much for, for writing it, first of all. Thanks for spending the time to talk with us. And it's now going to be an hour of us sharing our lethal mutations and you uh, putting us down the right path, I think, um, Carla and Robin. But, but yeah, I don't know. Um, Carla, did you want to, to start first just talking a little bit about where the book comes from and, and what your thoughts are behind it? Yeah, so Robin and I were working in a school together. Um, at the time, I was head of learning and research, um, and we had been working with a network of schools in our area. And we had we were faced with the question: How do you disseminate research to teachers? Um, and what is the best research? So one of the questions I think that at that time that we a kind of natural question that emanated from that was what does this look like in the classroom so there's evidence from the laboratory so a lot of the evidence we have from cognitive science comes from the laboratory and uh we encountered a lot of questions from the, the teachers in schools that we were working with and those teachers were from a you know really broad range of different contexts um and so we were also involved with organizing the Festival of Education. And we were get, you know, very fortunate to be meeting people who were who we felt could answer those questions. So people like Dylan William, um, Paul Kirshner, that's where I first met Paul Kirshner. And so we had this idea of um what if we took questions from the classroom and then put it to experts? My belief was, you know, from someone who'd been a classroom teacher and someone who had uh, done a PhD in education was, I sort of felt that teachers had been given answers to questions that they never asked and stuff had been imposed upon teachers. That was my experience when I first started teaching. So I first started teaching in a, an inner city London state school. I was there for six years. And when I look back now on the kind of stuff that was being foisted upon me, um, it's with great shame. Um, learning styles was there, brain gyms, all the classics were there. And I was disempowered. I didn't have any knowledge to challenge that or to think uh, in any kind of deep way about learning. So one of the aims of the book was, well, look, you know, how can we just sort of get teachers to kind of think about these things and have the questions come from the classroom first, not ha not have them come from outside the classroom so we did that we asked people and we thought uh you know like who could we ask and we just asked these people and everybody said yes amazingly and so we we took those questions we then used each chapter was uh, a bit like this actually a kind of it was conversational in tone and we wanted to drive the conversation back to the classroom get it away from the kind of academic register stuff that wasn't going to be useful for teachers and so we did that and we had a um we initially we took a, a, a well over 100 questions from teachers and then we used um we used we could have categorized them into different categories and thought okay behavior is a big question here from teachers who's the kind of person we could get to talk about behavior feedback who could we get to talk about feedback and so on and so forth and so we did that and then um we wrote the book and uh we had a publisher for it and then uh, and that was it and yeah that's that's sort of my memories of it robin may by the way i asked robin robin really is brilliant at kind of organizational stuff and structural stuff and vision and you know putting things together i'm terrible at that so he 
was instrumental in a lot of the kind of the structure of the book. Um, and then we, you know, in, in the, Robin also was thinking about how can teachers use this? Uh, that was, you know, the focus of what he was doing at the time. Uh, so I, I think it, um, I think it worked out well. And um, yeah, I'm glad people liked it. I yeah, Rob, yeah, absolutely chimes with, with my memory of why we wanted to write the book and, and really how it came about and you know, to give a, a wee bit more detail of the, the process. So I think it's quite, I'm always interested in how people write books and people always say as well, if, if you're a teacher or a school leader, have you got time to write a book? Because they assume that you must be skiving and not doing the day job, but actually the books emerge from what you do during the day. And I've always done the bulk of my writing, whether it's either blogging or books um, in the summer, because I just I find it a really useful cathartic process to end a school year and capture all the things that have happened and all the things you've been reading and doing in your own professional learning and your own classroom experience and distilling it into something that makes a, a bit of sense of what it is you're trying to do so you know Caroline had the idea to write a book over I think a long period of time of just sitting down and chatting like where our departments were um Carl's could have walked past the history department to go to the English department and I was quite often sat in the lobby the, the, the history department with a big kind of glass window at the front so um, you know, Carol could have pop in and have a chat and, and it was just all, all the things that we wanted to address in the book came from a lot of those conversations that when we, we got into doing it, we, we went initially from thinking we'd write the whole thing ourselves to then realising that because we were working with the Festival of Education and having access to all those people, it'd be much better and perhaps punchier to do the interview format as well with two people per chapter. It means that you're going to get some synchronicity and other points of disagreement and that shows the complexity of the research which we thought was something quite good to get out of the book so you will see you know where answers really differ there, there isn't necessarily consensus around what research says or what we can infer from the research so uh, we spent a long time just doing the interviews uh, it helped that we were working in a teaching school uh, partnership so we could we could talk to teachers from 18 different schools that's where all those questions came from it wasn't just within our school and there was a real diversity of types of schools, primary, secondary, single sex, faith schools, international schools, um, you know, a, a real mix, which was great. So we got a lot of different questions and we had to spend a lot of time getting the questions to or, or tweak the questions. Sometimes people ask really specific yeah. things that well, you know, they were in the right area and there was something really good there, but the question wouldn't quite work for this format. So we had to do a little bit of tweaking with that, which you know, I don't think was breaking any ethical boundaries, but it was just to make sure we got a, a fuller conversation out of it. And then the steer that we gave to all the interviewees was we were looking for answers that were kind of maximum 300 words so that you know, people would, it would be a page turner. You know, that was the idea and you, that you could dip in and out of. So um, some of the answers we had to sort of distill down a, a little bit, but, um, and it was a mixture of, most of them I think were in-person interviews that we did with people, and some of them you know, kind of online, some of them we went to visit people. In uh, one or two cases, people preferred to type their answers because they felt more comfortable with that format. So that was fine with us, we, we weren't too bothered about that. Um, and then it was a case of saying, right, well, let's how do we tee up the chapters with a bit of writing ourselves. So, so a good chunk of it was written, but a lot of it was edited and organized. So the the, the coming of all of this together was in July, where you know we'd done the interviews, we had all these transcripts, and we hadn't done any of the writing ourselves at that point yet. But we just met for the whole month of July. We had this kind of like basement office and a massive whiteboard, so we just kind of we'd meet for coffee and about an hour of let's talk about what we're going to do today. Hammered it all out of the board, went away with the task list, and then we'd meet again the next day. And we just did that for a month, and it was brilliant. It was I still think in my twenty-something years as a teacher. The best professional development I've done because the chance to sit down with you know people like Daisy and Tom and Jill Berry and, and just talk to them about the questions we'd had from the teachers and then after that once we'd done the interview we just were, were talking generally about what had emerged from those questions it was brilliant I learned so much and the, the people every single person that we asked agreed to do it there was nobody that we approached who turned it down and it was also quite interesting I think one of the, the early signups we got was Doug Lamolf so as soon as we got Doug on board then we told everybody else, by the way, Doug's going to be in the book. And like, oh, yeah, I want to be in that book. So <laughs> it was a bit like organising a music festival at one point, but yeah, it was great. It was, it was a lot of fun to do. Um, and even though we got it all done and we were happy with it, we had no idea whether anyone was going to bother at all to look at it. But that wasn't kind of the point. In a way, we just thought we want something that's quite authentic and you know, the teacher voice comes through from it but also it gets people to think a bit more about the evidence base. And actually we, we did a few research as we did research at national conference. I think the month it was published and we did a launch event as well with Tom Sherrington, which was a lot of fun too. And it just took off. It was like, it really caught us by surprise that um, 
it was it was selling and it was appearing in like Waterstones and things like that as well. It was just a, a, we never thought that a book about education research was pitched that teachers would be popular, but, but it was. And you know, people still talk about it now, which is lovely. And and that is, I think, down to the interviewees and how they approached it. Because if they hadn't agreed to do it and they hadn't answered the questions the way they did with that steer of you put it in everyday parlance and it's about you know this is a book for teachers by teachers type of thing so we were not looking for dense academic language we're looking for very clear short punchy explanations about quite complex things so when all of that came together yeah it, it was nice to sit down with the, the, the final version of it and flip through it and say yeah we, we did that that was nice <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. And I am I am one of those that's hugely grateful that it's not really dense academic language because some people um, enjoy that. Some people, people appreciate that. For me, that's really difficult to be able to engage with and to persevere with and be able to get from it the, the point that's being put across. And, um, and, and I, I was just sat here listening to you both then thinking about that incredibly unique position that you were both in, that you were party to all of these conversations with these experts with their answers to the book as well as your joined up thinking and and that uh, incredible web that would have been woven from that to to help with the insights with you know the in-person green room conversations because uh, you know much of it would have been in person then etc and I just wanted to echo as well that yes people bought it when you when it was published and you know Dave and I and I I can't quite say the same for George, but Dave and I have been teaching in the classroom for a few years now. But I was um, I was reminded of your book because it's one of those staples that I know. But I was reminded of it again when um, it was a presentation from we have some um, internal development um, programs for staff at, at a variety of levels in, in their professional development. And I was at one of our schools listening to a presentation from somebody who's earlier on in her development. And she spoke about how your book, this book, was a really powerful, influ in, powerful, influ powerful influence on the focus that she had and the approach that she took. And straight away, I messaged Dave and I said, Dave, we have to try and discuss this one as well, because it's one of those that you know it's there and you refer to it and you've used it, but we can't forget that it's there either. And it's absolutely so brilliant to be able to have this conversation with you as well. And now, George, you've, you've got some questions about that later, because um, it's still it, talked about and used and referred to all of the time. Um, so I know, Dave, that you want to come in and have some reflections on that one. But for me, I was just it was just listening to those conversations and 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 hearing yeah. about how you had that unique insight. And also, we are all still discussing it now. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Dave. Over to you. No, I, I mean, just to, to build on what's been said so far, the, the experience that I've got, and I think I alluded to it in the, in the introduction as well, was um, the, the idea, the question, should you really not smile before half term? Um, and that one sort of stuck in my head because it was one of those where in my first year of teaching, I remember thinking, I want to be, you know, I want to be liked, I want to be really nice to these students, I want them to feel positive, I want them to feel motivated. Um, and I had all these sort of um, ideas on how I was going to motivate um, the classes in front of me. Um, I didn't have much of the knowledge at that point of how I was going to do this. And one piece of advice was to make sure you don't smile till Christmas. Um, and so I went in then and, and tried this and it just didn't seem to work for the relationships. Uh, when I did start smiling, it seemed to work better. Um, the motivation was there. I, I, I get it. I sort of get it, but I don't get why I can't smile. And, and so then speaking to somebody else, they said, oh, no, that's wrong. Um, and I thought, well, it's not just wrong. I can see where it's coming from. But it was like and, and I was sort of in this middle ground thinking that I, I can get bits from both of you, but I don't I don't know. I've got the full picture here of what this is. And, and when you read the book straight away, you just read uh, what Tom says. Um, and it says, this is folk wisdom with a grain of truth that is frequently misunderstood. So it talks about the lethal mutations, but it talks about how there's, there's something in it. It talks about how, um, there, there's, and it's like you said, we're about having two or three different voices that, that say um, things that are the same. And, and Robin, you said about how different, different voices sort of come in and, and say these, these ideas where you can connect together and go, yeah, that's right. But there's, there's sort of you know, different opinions as well. And, and you can take um, bits and pieces from what works for your toolkit at, at your particular time. And, and it just gave me that permission, I guess. Um, so when I was in PPD meetings later on in the year, I felt more confident after reading this book to be able to say, actually, I think what you've got right there, this works for me. Um, 
I'd, I'd like to think a little bit more about this and with humility, it's not that I want to challenge it, I don't disagree with it, but I want to learn a little bit more about where that your thoughts are there are coming from and try and piece it all together. And I guess that's being more expert, making the links between pieces of knowledge. And and this book is uh, with the with the two different voices through each chapter. Um, that's what like, this book does for me. It gives me two different answers to something, uh, two sort of similar questions, and I can start to piece it together, start to make the links. I can start to think, what does that mean for me? What does it look like in my classroom? Um, so, so yeah, I just think that's um, that's exactly where where this book sort of sits for me. Um, I didn't know if there's any sort of particular um, bits in the book for either of you where you think um, you know that's you know that that makes sense, that resonates, or, or you missed the mark there, David. Actually, you should be thinking a little bit, a little bit more like this. Or I don't know if there's anything you'd, you'd like to build on or challenge in in what's been said so far. Um, I would say that I think the thing that when we did the book. You have to remember that Rob and I were also classroom teachers. So we were encountering stuff that was we felt was quite powerful. I think the thing that really impacted me was talking to Dylan William about um, marking, feedback, and assessment, those three things. And Dylan is, I think, the preeminent voice on this. Um, you know, he, he writes, you know, assessment for learning is – at 25 years old now it's it's difficult to think of a school that doesn't use it in some form and his idea of um essentially um that a lot of marking is wasted time i think in the book you know dylan's brilliantly quotable one of the quotes in the book i think is marking is the most expensive public relations exercise in history mm-hmm. um and that you know a huge amount of marking just has no impact at all on on students so he was advocating this four quarters model of 25 percent where you just skim through things and that that was something that um as an english teacher i'd been thinking a lot about which was that uh, one of the major purposes of marking stuff or looking at stuff is to know what to do next and also one key thing from that conversation was the point is to improve the student, not improve the work. So instead of trying to improve an essay, you have the longer term goal of trying to improve the student. And those two things are not the same thing. So we've all done that thing where a student has a project or a piece of work or an essay, whatever it is. And we're focused on the, the work and getting the work up to a gra- their target grade or whatever it is. And that may be us working harder than them or whatever it is. So that was something that um, again, really got me thinking. And I think a lot of people, I know Kate Jones, um, Robin, she talks about that a lot, that that quote from the book as well. She uses that a lot. I think that that's, for me, that was the, uh, the one moment when writing the book where I thought, wow, that's a really powerful thing because it's so applicable uh, for teachers. I would agree with that because the the thing that people talk to me most about um, with the book is exactly that and probably the most popular shared image from the various diagrams that are within it is the four quarters marking and uh, when we were interviewing Dylan and and he came out with this it was just a sort of it was almost like he kind of threw it and there's like, oh I just had this thought the other day and here you go and as soon as we heard him explain four quarters marking how it works it was just like yes so we'll have that we're absolutely putting that one in the book so um, and, and Ollie put together a diagram for us that was you know, ca- captured really neatly too. And it's just a great time saver um, and also touches on a lot of things that getting wrong, like putting so much effort into you know, forensic marking, line by line marking that isn't necessarily landing. And uh, it comes back to that classic thing of you know, feedback should be more work for the recipient than the donor. And you know that, that's what it practically looks like, which... I mean, one of the things with the book, the, the title of it is not easy to hashtag or, or whatever, but it, people really liked it because it does exactly what it's meant to. We were trying to say, look, what does it look like in a practical sense in the classroom? You know, can can you make this work on a on a wet Wednesday afternoon in November in Aberdeen? Yeah, of course you can. Um, so that's the, the the angle we were coming from. And when he explained it like that, it was like, this is great. And I started doing four quarters marking and just thought, this is liberating. God, I wish I'd known this years ago. Carlo, a, a great blog once in a while, you know, I wish I knew when I started teaching, which I always going to fire onto people who are just joined the profession and saying, this is great because I wish I, I'd read this kind of stuff back then. And you know, to, to realize that your your students are going to get 
they'll still get that that very close forensic check from time to time but also the, the whole class feedback approach i think is, is brilliant and teachers who have switched to that and found it really transformative it's better quality feedback in many ways and a huge time saver for them as well but it puts a lot more it's harder work in some ways in that it means that you've got to get really good at upskilling your pupils on how to give peer feedback and how to do self-assessment, which they're not good at. That's a high-end skill that actually a lot of teachers might even struggle with being good at. And if you can get them good at that, you set them up really well to be independent learners. And you know that's the holy grail, isn't it? We want them to leave school ready to be able to, to critically self-reflect on their work. And if you, if you get that balanced assessment approach right and that balanced feedback approach right, you can do that. And that's really powerful. I, th I think it's just add to add to that. It's helpful. I think, to think about where we've come from. If we think about, say, the landscape, certainly when I started teaching in 2000, 2006, the, there were so many atrocities committed in the name of teaching and learning. And a lot of these things were bad in two, on two fronts. One, they had very little impact on pupils in terms of their learning and their attainment. And two, they made life for teachers a lot harder. So marking was one of those things where we were talking to teachers were saying, oh, you know, they're doing triple marking at our school. What's the evidence for this? Now, again, we, you know, if we have time, we'll talk about lethal mutations. But that's a great example of something where and Dylan told, you know, I remember talking to Dylan after he, Dylan writes assessment for learning. He goes to America. He said he came back five years later, was invited to a trust to see how they were. He said, the guy said, we have embedded formative assessment in our uh, alliance. And he was horrified at what he saw, you know, APP grids, you know, individual, you know, asking kids, what level are you at? What do you need to do to get to up to a level, you know, secure, whatever it was, C4, you know, plus. I mean, just terrible stuff. So a lot of the, the, the impetus for this book was to kind of empower teachers. This is a thing that the more I work in this field, the more I'm sort of really enthused by this because a lot of the kind of answers, if you like, were um, not available to teachers. They didn't have the power to question. The, I mean, imagine being told you need to plan three lessons for every one lesson to a, to uh, a, to sort of accommodate the three different learning styles of pupils in your lesson imagine being told that and doing that and then being told on top of that you need to triple mark what they're doing you need to have individual levels and what they need to do this was the kind of you know the bloodstained battlefield where we were coming from so um that to me was um a very important part of the book that it was something that was intended to be emancipatory for the classroom teacher, we were always thinking about that person who had maths period two on a Monday and was, you know, thinking, I'm not convinced that these policies are there. We we, we just thought, well, we'll write it for that person. So that, that at least for me, was it was an important idea. Yeah, I think you just described my experience <laughs> of teaching at one point. I had the Mark 200 books every week triple impact marking VAK was written in my teacher planner and I had to identify exactly how I was identified uh, how, how I was targeting each one every lesson my marking policy was two sides of a4 um just for maths alone so but I had no way of questioning I didn't know I I, I, and I could have found out, I suppose, but I didn't know I could find out because I didn't know where to go, where they'd gotten the ideas from or anything. It just felt like there's so much stuff going on and it really doesn't seem to be sticking. And I know, George, you were going to take um, you had some questions that you were going to ask to build on as well, didn't you? Well, I find this really interesting because I think, yeah, it's it's another example of the relationship between theory and practice, isn't it? Because obviously there was some theory there behind VAK or, or um, yeah, the other things you mentioned, like market and brain gym, whatever. I'm just interested, having been through this process now um, it, for the book, how do you think we got to a stage where these things became enshrined in whole school policies and so on? What, how How did theories, which were probably 
you know, in that, I imagine there's some really interesting papers about VAK that, you know, you could reflect on. How did that get to the, the what, what, what you guys have been describing? Robin, do you want? I have a yeah. lot of Robin, you can go first. Yeah, um, I can't give you a definite answer because um, you know, this is just a sort of a suspicion. But I come back in my mind to a session that I think I did about two, four years ago, and I was doing my headship qualifications at Stirling University, and we had uh, a group of teachers and academics come across from Sweden, and it was really interesting because they were saying to us that they thought Swedish education was in a, a really poor state and they were lamenting the demise of it because they said in the early 1990s people thought of Sweden as they now think of Finland and Estonia and it was it was the place to to copy all your ideas from and everything was great and they said what really ruined us was was new public management uh, or NPM where they you know introduced essentially sort of private sector practices um, and, and lots of accountability and lots of league tables and data and, and all this kind of stuff. And they said that actually was just the, the death knell of Swedish education. We never come back from it. And I suppose we went through a lot of the same in Britain, um, especially around the sort of new labor period of time where we got school league tables and you know all these kind of performance indicators that had to show where where people and that's why I think we got the least mutation of you know, Dylan's work into having levels and, uh, you know, being in schools where kids had target grades sellotaped to the desk in front of them saying, this is what you're at, this is where you need to be. And we became obsessed with all of that at the exclusion of just really good teaching and learning. So we were, we were focusing our attention in the wrong places. So by taking our eye off the box, I think actually there was a lot of good educational theory that was getting into classrooms in the 20th century, but we moved in a different direction, became obsessed with data um, and, and not looking at educational research that meant that a gap opened up, which was filled by consultants who were able to make an awful lot of money by going around schools and going to conferences and throwing out fancy ideas that they had that weren't rooted in educational practices. And that's how we became obsessed with VAK and, and all the rest of it. So that's my, I suppose, my, my gut feeling as to how we got there as well as a, a, you know, a bit of informed uh, opinion around that. But you know, there's lots of different reasons for it. It's a complex thing, but I'll you know, hand over to Carl, who definitely will be able to riff on this theme. <laughs> Well, here's a curious thing. Um, take an education department in any university, take the uh, psychology department, and often what you find is there's very little crossover. I was, uh, you know, five years into being a teacher, four years into doing a PhD in education, and I read a book, I mean, this is over 10 years ago now, called what does, Why Don't Students Like School? Or Why Students Don't Like School by Dan Willingham. And I remember reading this stuff and thinking, okay, you know, learning about cognitive architecture and the the kind of the kind of fundamentals of learning and the like things like the limitations of working memory, um, harnessing long-term memory, the idea that you uh what you know determines how you understand new knowledge. You know, and I remember thinking, God, this is this is isn't this important? Like, what shouldn't we be knowing this stuff? Whereas, what, what I encountered before that was fairly obscure Russian linguists talking about stuff that was interesting, you know, very interesting, but broadly philosophical or in nature. So, I think what you have in education are you, are you, are you talking about Vygotsky? Sorry, Vygotsky for my PhD, I focused a lot on a, another Russian philosopher called Bakhtin. Who I, you know, I love his analysis of Dostoevsky, but didn't do me much use on period five on a Friday afternoon. Whereas cognitive load theory was like, oh, that's why that kid is even like into even sort of understanding things like misbehavior. Going, he's just he, it's just too much. You, you know, break things down into, into steps. Um, it gave me. I felt as a teacher that explaining things to kids you know just simply explaining things well to kids was something we shouldn't do and i remember being told don't talk for longer than eight minutes in an hour and i and, I, and all the research on, um on explicit instruction was so powerful to me because that idea of uh, explaining things well checking for understanding handing off as Robin said earlier, the point is to get students to become independent learners. So I, I, I was thinking, well, 
a lot of what we call educational research is the category is so broad as to almost make the label meaningless. You're talking about anthropology, philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, you're talking about cognitive science. I mean, completely, you know, disparate fields. So we were always thinking, Robert and I, when we were working on the book, okay, we don't, like, the theoretical stuff, and, you know, obviously cognitive load theory is also a theory. Um, but we were thinking, well, what what's the sharp end of this? Like what like again, that person on a Friday afternoon dealing with bad behavior, like can we give can we give that person something? So I think that uh you have that a culture where teachers are um they're the research to not the researchers. Things are being done up to teachers. They're not actually actively involved in evidence or research. And it's written a language, quite frankly, that is, you know, kind of a lot of it's kind of post-structuralist. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's language that excludes a lot of it. You know, teachers they just can't get their heads around it. And even if they could, I'm not sure that it's you know much use. Whereas if you read, as I say, Dan Williams' book, that you know that was just something that really opened my eyes. I, I guess my fear is though that we've we've kind of thrown the Vygotsky baby out with the VAK bathwater. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, I saw a lesson today um, and it was beautifully taught, really well modeled, all the steps named. And I thought it was a really hard problem. So it's like, here's, this is cognitive load theory in action. But when I asked the students, it was about chemistry. And I said, you know, what's this reaction look like? They had no idea. And I think, yeah, I, uh, one thing I wanted to put to you guys, and I, uh, I shared this with you before the session was, um you know where do you think research in education might go next because i feel like we've lost some of that concept building stuff that Vygotsky talked about um in his research um I, I wonder whether you think there might have been an overcorrection and i think it's right that we had the correction because we were obviously a long way in one direction um but but i wonder whether some of that stuff um did have value and maybe now has been neglected i think it has value but i mean and just on the cognitive science thing, I mean, we may need to entertain the idea that there's a, there's there is such thing as a science of learning, but there might not be such thing as a science of teaching. So, you know, anyone who's being prescriptive about what to do in a lesson, this is the paradox about all this. You kind of have to understand the basic underlying structure of things in order to be completely unique. Like teaching is. Um, it's more like stand-up comedy than an engineer. You know, you're, you're, you're drawing on expertise. You're drawing on, like, things that work in one lesson don't work in, even with the same class, it doesn't work. So having a broad range of tools and knowing what to do is, I think, really important. And I, that's one of the criticism of people with, with, with the field that we're interested in. It, anyone I know, Paul, John Sweller, Dylan, all of them are interested in creating independent learners and none of them you, you know dylan will tell you this he never tells teachers what to do he just says this is the evidence we have on this area and teachers should then make their own decisions in their own classrooms and i think that's uh, you know if you see any kind of uh, whole school plan first of all generic pedagogy i think is an issue but if you have, say, every single teacher must do this at the beginning of a lesson, that to me is a kind of a red flag. So it's it, there's a paradox there of here's all the evidence on this thing. Now you need to do something that is not prescriptive. And it, and it, and it, it ties back to something Dave said. Sorry. Uh, I've got just a little bit on that, which I want to build on. Uh, I, really sure. love. Um, I really like that. And what, I, what I'm taking away from that is the idea, almost like the Craig Barton model. So I've seen like the I do, which is your um, sort of reading the books and you sort of getting the information, you're getting all the, the sort of um, the, the theory and, and, and the knowledge through the theory of, of what what we've uh, tried, we're going to the laboratory and we're, we're picking up all this knowledge. Um, and then you go to sort of the we do, which is almost sort of like this, that discussion with, with people who are can share that expertise and we can think about, well, well I've tried this, it's not quite worked. And, and this book basically is that sort of handed over the baton, as Tom Chanson might call it. And, and then and then you do is the classroom when you sort of go in then and, and you try it and, and you see what will work and the lethal mutations it feels like it's a little bit um sort of where it's going to the um 
that these mutations are like the misconceptions, I guess, when you do need deliberate practice and, and you go, okay, well, I really thought that. And I'm thinking hypercorrection effect as well, uh, where, where you think, I really did believe that this is the right thing to do. And, and there'll be teachers out there that, that really did invest in sort of VAK and now go, actually, I can see why that, that just isn't uh, working for helping our students to make progress, but at the time, very invested in it. And, and, it's, um, and it just makes me think about that sort of model of, um, of sort of teaching. Um, but over a long, longer time frame and a longer period for, for teachers, it, it seems to have a lot of similarities. It seems to mirror well, pretty well in my mind. I don't know whether what you think about that, whether it's, you know, adults learn um, similarly um, and, and that, that sort of model seems to, to fit true or whether there's sort of some misconceptions I'm showing within that. I don't know. I think if we can come back to the point that Carl made, which I totally agree with it, that we've probably got a science of learning, but not necessarily a science of teaching. I think that that's it. So, you know, teaching is such a, a complex thing. But again, paradoxically, at the end of the book, we wanted to try and strip it down to the things that we thought were, were the non-negotiables that should take place in the classroom. And that was one of the really you know, powerful bits of, of doing the book for me was that when we got to the end, Carl and I just thought, right, we've, we've kind of got the, the script in place and it's gone off to the publisher. But what have we, what have we learned from this and what's the, you know, the grand finale of it? And we just thought, well, let's put together everything we've learned from this process and come up with a model of pedagogy. And that's the thing you, George asked earlier, what, future of, of research i'd like to see is spending a lot more time on, on pedagogy because i always i feel that it gets squeezed out in schools we talk so much about assessment and curriculum but we forget about the pedagogy that underpins those things so that, that to me feels a bit like the correlation so the diagram at the end of the book where we thought right these are the things that we absolutely want to see in our classroom but we encourage all teachers to then think about okay well what are yours they don't have to look like ours but you know, what are the things that you want to be doing regularly in your classroom? What are the things you can screen out and just strip out and get rid of it to try and simplify what is a really complex thing to do? Um, I do also think there's a, a, a clarion call here still, you know, a few years after the book, to try and get teachers to be more informed in how to be critical consumers of research. So the, uh, I like the diagram the Charter Calls for Teaching produced, which essentially shows this is what the, the body of research is. This is what looks like in your own context, and this is your own professional judgment. And if you can line those three things, Venn diagram, but in the middle is, is what we consider evidence-informed practice. And that's great, because that might mean that what I'm doing in my particular school in Scotland might look really different to what somebody's doing in a primary school in Wales and so on. But ultimately, the, there is a common denominator there of the evidence that's out there, as Carl was saying about Dylan, not telling you what to do, but telling you to engage with research evidence in a way that you feel competent to do that so you can apply it to your own setting and using your own professional judgment and that's where we want all teachers to get to but there's a big gap there um, and you know initial teacher education is not going to plug that gap so what we need is really effective professional learning taking place in schools across the country to make sure we can i remember um listening to a craig barton podcast um where he was talking to mark mccourt and they were talking about and Mark. It was it was it was a conversation, and Mark McCourt said um, they were reflecting on where things have happened and what happens in schools and the sort of around lethal mutations. And he said, "Well, it's if you hear something in a conference that somebody says to you, you know, what their tagline is. What what he didn't use the word gimmick. He used something much better than I just have. He said, don't just take it as what they've said. Go away and read read the research, read the research behind that." But reading the research isn't as simple and straightforward as you might think, because some people are more proficient or confident at it than others. And some research is, you know, research is written with a very different audience. So it's about that connection. And, and I'm not, I, I only started using Google Scholar a couple of months ago because somebody introduced it to me. And then I thought, I have to share this with other people. So we shared it in an online conference with other Matt maths leads as well. And I hope I wasn't patronizing anybody there either. Because I was thinking, look, there's this whole field that I haven't started engaging with yet. Um, and I, I need to do more and let me share it with you. And I know it's something that Dave and I are hoping to do and include in our sessions in the future as well, is start to engage with research a little bit more and, and find out about it and be more confident and help others to do that. I think that's absolutely right. And I really like the, the paper that Tom Bennett wrote up, a sort of proposal paper a few years ago about the research lead in schools. And I still think that's an underdeveloped idea in British education. Some schools have got them and, and others have got something that looks a little bit like them. And um, what I've, I've learned, um, I've, I've tried to be in the roles I've had, but at the same time, you, you need to warm up 
you know, your school community to make that step. You can't just appoint somebody cold and then expect everyone to be evidence informed, but it does take somebody who can you know, spend a lot of time looking at what's out there and distill it, you know, for the whole school community, but even an individual teacher, an individual department, you know, you need that sort of research general practitioner within the school that somebody can come to as a sounding board or can go to a department meeting and say, this is the thing that we're really focusing on and we're having a bit of a battle with and say, right, well, you know, I can actually send you some research papers around this that might help point you in that direction. In other words, cut, cut down the difficulty of trying to find good quality information and, and how to interpret that. Because if you put the same research paper in front of 10 different teachers, you probably get 10 different takeaways from it. So that's one of the things that it's assumed that research is this monolithic thing that says one thing and that's what you do. It's not, it's, of course, it's highly complex, but it's, it's a willingness to try and engage with that is what we want to see as a mindset with teachers. And it's where I think Research Head over the last decade has been a really powerful vehicle for it. You know, Carl and I are both heavily involved in it. I helped Tom Bennett with Research Head Scotland. And it's just been the best thing that I've seen for professional learning because you'll still get fantastic debates. I mean, the best bit of Research Head, arguably, is the pub afterwards where everyone sort of sits down and goes through all the stuff that they've heard and, and then carries on the debate. It's brilliant. But it's just trying to create that space where teachers have time to engage with the skills that are required as a professional to engage with research as well as the research itself. So I think that's been a really positive trend in the last decade that I've seen, but we've still got a lot more to go, definitely. As uh, as Rhys just um, trying to get Carl back in, I think he's just been cut off. Um, and uh, George now as well has had to go because he's um, he's got to uh, go and uh, do some family stuff. He's, um, we're down to the three of us, uh, Robin, um, and, uh, and I'll leave Ree um, just helping Carl to come back in. Um, the, the, the thing that I'm getting from this is that it's a really complex process um, to do this. Um, yet there's this sort of um, feeling that, that it should be more straightforward, that, that we, we should be able to pick up a little bit like a, you know, a doctor um, in a surgery uh, and be able to, to say, well, if this is happening, then this is what we do. Um, and, and we're sort of almost sort of longing for that and wanting that as teachers, that sort of instruction manual. Um, and, and, and to write an instruction manual is just not really possible because of the, the complexities and the, the, the huge variation that you'll see in um, each individual classroom. As, as we've talked about before, it could be the same class the next day and what worked that time doesn't work the next time. And um, there, there are some brilliant uh, books out there. Um, this is one of them. Uh, I really do feel that uh, when you look at um, some of those troubleshooting questions it, it's it really is that sort of surgery um, of well this is this is something which is, is not quite working for me and here is a, a response that can help you to get to a place that that works for you um other other books like Doug Lamos um Teach Like a Champion um I said that it's impossible to write an instruction manual but if ever there was one that feels like to me uh, a place where I can go and get the techniques and and there are other books out there too um but it's that accessibility as well it's uh um, as Ria said, I, I find it intimidating um, reading some academic material myself because um, when um, when sort of thinking about um, the research in, in such formal language, I don't have the, the acquired knowledge to be able to quickly access that and, and translate it. Um, and so books like this, I just think, are really powerful for, for staff to be able to, to quickly make um, those sort of um, those adjustments to, to their, their teaching, the, the improvements they want to make, taking on the action step. Um, Sort of understanding that lethal mutation and um, of course if we simplify too much the lethal mutation can can arise um, so we need to need to sort of as we said go to the research um, and, um, and and sort of um, read more around things that we're particularly interested in but um, but we need to, to try and simplify something that's just incredibly complex and and this book with with the quotes that are in there as well at the beginning of every chapter um, as um, Carl said, the, the dinner is really quotable. Well, I think you've got so many quotable people that you talk to there. Where I just read it and go, I get that in five words. Mary might talk to us three, didn't she, about how um, that is the, the sort of art of the writing is to, uh, to be able to, to give a message in a really concise and, and quick way uh, that people are going to be able to grasp, get hold of, understand, and, and to not take you know, five minutes and 20,000 words like I just have. <laughs> No, I think one of the, the really positive things as well has been far more in the way of books being written by teachers that are accessible. So when I started teaching, I think I only read one book by another teacher in the first 10 years. Um, it was Jonathan Smith's The Learning Game, uh, which some some people here might might remember. It's gone back a bit, but it was really useful as a bit of a, a kind of catch-all book for, for teachers. And then, you know, Carl's already mentioned um, the, the Dan Willingham book that came out and Make It Stick, which was around about the same time. I think they were kind of at the vanguard and introduced teachers to cognitive 
psychology and cognitive science, but I mean, cognitive psychology is a term was coined back in 1967 by Ulrich Neisser. And, and you know, we, this stuff's been around for a long time. This is not suddenly new and groundbreaking. It's just we haven't been paying attention to it. So I think seeing the number of books that are coming out now that are being written for teachers, that we don't really have any excuses. Like we, we know all this kind of stuff. I love Bruce Robertson's work, by the way. I don't know if you've had Bruce on the show. Um, the man walks of water. He's brilliant. And he's just got such a great, like you were saying, Dave, that ability to just distill down things that could be really complex, but communicate it so clearly. And I don't know how Bruce is like, I don't know if he's in a some sort of a bet with Kate Jones to see who can write more books, but I mean, they're turning them out at a phenomenal rate. So if, if you only ever read two authors, Kate and Bruce, go for that, you'd be absolutely fine. Um, but we, I do think we're in a better position overall with how accessible this information is. We're not in a better position for creating time for teachers to access it. So that's the systemic problem that we've got that, you know, bigger brains than me need to solve, but you know, it's something I'm keenly aware of and how do we make sure that teachers are given a bit of freedom to, to try to engage with us and the right structures in place within the school for how you use your inset days, how you use twilight sessions, you know, what resources you put in place. I'd rather, you know, spend, uh, you know, a couple hundred pounds on good books and put them in my school library than send one teacher off on a course that might not do anything at all. So making those kind of decisions can make a big impact within your school community. As we as we drive in towards the end of this session now, um, there's just one one question that George asked on the, the email um, earlier today. He shared with us a few questions that he was interested in. He's had to go, but there was, there's one about how obviously um, as we learn more and our understanding evolves, then uh, then some of our sort of thoughts and ideas change um, uh, or, or adapt or, or you know grow. Um, and is there anything sort of since writing the book where you thought actually um, we could build on that idea, or, or maybe there's something in the, that I'd like to put in that book, which, um, you know, at the time of writing um, wasn't there. Is, there. is there anything sort of over the recent years of, of what we're learning about how our minds work and, and how how sort of teaching and learning happens? Um, is there is there anything that sort of you know, come up that you want to want to add or change or you know, anything? Like that? I was jumping with that, but in, you know, it's been six years, I think, since it came out. Yeah. If we were doing yeah. the end card, I don't know if you'd agree with us. I think the the chapter headings will look different and um, we may be focusing on slightly different things, but um, I think maybe we should try and add it to our to-do list to kind of do an updated version of it. But yeah. I think you know, things have moved on, which is good to see. I mean, unfortunately, the chapter on um, behaviour management hasn't resolved behaviour issues um, or indeed brought consensus um, to that. But uh, no, I, th I think if we were doing it again, you looked at, okay, well, what topics would we focus on? There'd be a bit of a tweak around some of that maybe, but um, the, 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 there's enough has happened in the last few years to, to merit a, a kind of a, a 2.0 edition of it. I think if we were doing the book, well, if there was a, what does this look like in the classroom too, it would be, I'd be asking teachers because I think that. Yeah, that's a great call. You, there's people who are writing blogs for example like adam boxer where it's a really careful distillation of well like talking through lee schumann has a great um description in his work uh on pc gay uh pedagogical content knowledge he says we don't have enough richly developed portrayals of expertise and i think that it's one thing to say to teachers working memory is limited it's one thing to say to teachers, oh, the worked example effect is really good. But I think we teachers need to see how it works in their context, in their classroom, with their pupils, with the type of pupils they teach. So more of that, and that's where Doug's work is brilliant. So um, last, I was at a conference with Doug last weekend and I, he did this amazing talk where it was just, it was just a clip of a teacher teaching uh, maths and all little very kind of you know like a var you know going over fine detail what he did like he oh look he's whispered that to that kid to motivate that kid he's actually gone around with a with a um a clipboard and he's you know made a note of what all the kids are doing you know that 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 level of granularity so i think we we would be even more even more drilling down on um you know we've we have a a kind of fairly sound understanding now of how learning works uh, what does it look like in practice? I mean, the, the, the Tim uh, Perry. Um, so there was a study done two years ago with the EEF where they looked at examples of cognitive science in the classroom. And unfortunately, what they found is that there's very little. 
We have loads of evidence of how retrieval practice works in a laboratory with psychology students. We've got very, very little of it actually working in the classroom. And in that report, there's a kind of whole series of questions that are really useful for teachers about these are the kind of things we might begin to ask. Um, does it need to be, for example, in English? Is retrieval practice useful for A-level English, for example, for sixth form English? Certainly, we know it's useful in science and maths. All the uh, laboratory, almost all of the research on retrieval practice, all of it is on uh, science, maths, and some on languages. So what about history? What about geography? What about English? You know, is it appropriate to do retrieval practice for, uh, as I say, sixth form students doing Shakespeare? We don't know. So I think we would be drilling down even more and looking at, okay, how can we evaluate that then? How can we see how that works? Um, so yeah, that would be, this is the challenge that we're all working on together. I think, you know, teachers, school leaders, researchers, everybody, you know, this is the, this is the next horizon. Like, how do we get this stuff? We know it works. How do we make it work in the classroom? And uh, I think it's an exciting time. It's a brilliant time, isn't it? I was just thinking through ideas then, but the title it could be, what does this look like in my classroom? What does this look like in your classroom? It would be, I, 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 hopefully, hopefully that's definitely inspired you to... Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, no, because that would be, it, it would be brilliant. Um, and as you say, the direction we're going is just so incredibly exciting at the moment, the voices that we're hearing from on all of those other aspects as well. And I know that you're going to want to come in with your takeaway as well, aren't you, Dave? So I, I will I will stop now. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much to take away from the session. But if I, if I was to try and sum up what I've taken away from that is that, is that the interpretation of research is a really complex process. And so to, to go in with it with a humility, to, to challenge and question, um, but in a place where uh, we don't know the answers. And, and so, so to read, to, to think about um, sort of what people are saying, to take on advice from experts and then to try things in the classroom and to reflect and then to refine and then to, to go through that cycle, um, that reflective cycle. Uh, I think it's really important, um, the, the humility side of that, that there isn't one way of doing things. Um, but it's really important to read and, and to, to make yourself um, as informed as is is possible um, for you in the position that you're in so that you can um, have the best uh, success um, in that classroom. Um, so, so for me, it's the humility, um, I think, in this session today. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody. For me, I was just um, also thinking when you said it was about there's the science of learning and it's, I don't know if we'd be able to call it in the same way the science of teaching. And I was thinking, okay, maybe it's the art of teaching. And then it reminded me of Chris Such's work on the, the art and science of teaching primary reading. And maybe that's that's the direction we're going in now, isn't it? It's it's more than the science. It, it isn't, I, 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 I don't mean just about the art in that way, but it's that blending of the two, isn't it? It's the art and the science yeah. of teaching that we're moving towards now. And that's, yeah, that, that's, I, I've spent the last two years reading everything I can. His book, I think, is phenomenal. Um, Absolutely and I, brilliant. You know, that, that like, you can understand, you know, about systematic synthetic phonics, what what it means in on the research, but it doesn't help you when you have a child in front of you crying. You don't need, you know, education research there. You need something else. So teachers are, you know, we're constantly, uh, as, as Lee Schumann says, the only time a medical field approaches teaching is in an emergency room during a, a disaster. You know, and I, I think it's um, might be Adam Boxer who said, like a a brain surgeon is operating on one person with a team of people around him, whereas teachers are, you know, thirty with with often no help. So I think it's um, yeah, the, the the. But again, that's a paradox because you are leaning on evidence, but you almost have to forget what you know and just kind of have it become part of your instinct to sort of know what to do. Yeah, thank you. Oh, what an amazing note to end on that one is. So thank you both so much for your time today. And thank Thanks you Carl, for, for your us. perseverance you so in coming back onto the stage as well. And yeah, Robin, sorry about that.
no, no, I'm just thrilled to bits that you were able to. So thank you once again. And we're really looking forward to hopefully catching up with you in person as well, maybe at the next research ed, national ed conference. That would be brilliant. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.